In the late 1830s, black Americans, along with indigenous Americans, were forcefully relocated from the southeast and far, far out west. A little bit later, after World War I, desperate black Americans fleeing Jim Crow and racism in the south also fled to the west, and they somehow converged and met together. This location was a strategic place where these people were kind of corralled by the government, so they weren't going to interfere with some operations that they had going on. But where they were meant to be stranded, newly freed slaves had somehow transformed it into what some might call the closest thing to a Wakanda that ever existed for Negroes in America. Black people were living, learning, prospering, and doing better than even white residents of nearby cities. But in 1921, this city was burnt to the ground and one of the United States' most vicious and largely unreported, racially motivated domestic terrorist attacks this country has ever seen. And I bet you never heard so much as a whisper about it in history class. Celebrate Black History Month with me in this episode of Hip Hop Anonymous. Yo, 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 and welcome to the 14th episode of your favorite podcast, Hip Hop Anonymous, the show that's not really about hip hop at all, but more so about history, philosophy, conspiracy theories, and more. And I'm still your host, Dean Martian. Welcome back for another episode. I haven't done many themed episodes like yet, uh, meaning that it's not trying to celebrate any particular holiday or be in alignment with trendy things to talk about during a particular time. But this topic seemed fitting since it is Black History Month after all, and I'm a black person. So today's story doesn't have any hidden agendas necessarily or relate to some massive conspiracy theory, except in the sense that it just seems so surreal of a story. Something like this definitely could not have happened on American soil. It's a tale about early black Americans and their struggle and then their success and then their struggles again. I don't really like the idea of Black History Month for a lot of reasons. And also, I don't normally like to discuss divisive issues surrounding race. Our culture is already saturated with it, but this story is fascinating to me personally. I've had many conversations with non-black people who I'm sure mean well, but just say stupid shit. I've made public comments before about institutional racism and how slavery still affects black communities today. And then some know-it-all always chimes in and says something stupid like, slavery was hundreds of years ago, let it go. Or, you weren't a slave, stop talking like you were. And this, this episode is a rebuttal to that shit. I understand what it may appear to be from the outside and looking into our community sometimes. It may be easy to see certain places and say these people, they have a high rate of killing each other or they call themselves racial slurs that they don't want others to say. But, you know, even if they're singing along to a song on a top 40 playlist, I've used this example before, but fuck it, I'm using it again. Uh, we all agree that some soldiers, you know, they see combat, they return to the States with trauma, you know, PTSD. Some of these soldiers have families, and even if they aren't violent, 
sufferers of PTSD are going to have some sort of symptoms that impact the once normal flow of daily home life. Children mold to their parents' behaviors, not just children, but families mold to other their family members' behaviors sometimes when they live in close quarters, especially if they're scary niggas that can go off on you. And they carry these behaviors that they mold to with them until they have children of their own and they show them to their children like example vet comes home and develops addictive behaviors to deal with their trauma they become an alcoholic right they miss baseball games and pta meetings they're emotionally unavailable these kids grow up depressed and they have low self-esteem and those kids they grow up and they raise their kids with some sort of influence from that damage and then that cycle continues until intervention occurs now imagine that that traumatic experience that led to PTSD instead of it being a tour in uh, a war for a year, not to say that that's a small thing, but imagine it lasted over 400 years. And then the aftermath of passive discrimination after that, segregation, Jim Crow. You don't think that that would fuck people up generationally? If you can think that one guy can come home, mistreat his family a little bit, and that kid grows up and he's got issues today you don't think that that would have 400 years of shit here's a perfect case today's story as to why a group of people to this day might still feel paranoid about how others view them in society why some people might still be angry so i hope you enjoy this story as much as i did when i first heard it. i didn't enjoy it but it was it was interesting and fascinating to learn about. So let's just get into it. Early 1800s, many black Americans and native Americans were forcefully relocated from the American Southeast to the west of the Mississippi during the Trail of Tears. If you haven't heard of the Trail of Tears, it's pretty awful, but not really any more awful than some of the other events that took place on American soil in the name of freedom or whatever the hell they were in the name of. Real quick, the Indian Removal Act of 1830, it gave colonizers the right to round up tribes that were already living in America and supposedly protected by treaties, but were inhibiting the gold mining and overall resource jacking of, you know, the early American land. And as if it weren't bad enough, they had already laid waste to pre-colonial life. And now they were literally forcing the remainders of these people and slaves and freed men to walk the fuck away from where they live from one side of the country to the other at literal gunpoint. So many of these people died of exposure and starvation and disease along the way. And this lasted a f like a couple of years. As part of the Indian Removal Act, the relocated Native Americans, slaves and free men that I just mentioned, the, the ones that survived anyway, they would get a new territory all to themselves. That sounds pretty fair, right? You're taking me away from my land at gunpoint, but then I get my own fucking place, right? It's like my own room, right? I feel like a grown-up now. That's kind of cool. Could have just paid me to leave or provided some sort of humane transport, but whatever. It'd be worth it in the long run, I'm sure. 
So all these people, they didn't come from the same tribes either when they were getting together. They weren't all Native Americans weren't like just cool with each other. It was like I, those of them other niggas, they're from somewhere else. I don't even know them. They don't even believe in the same shit we believe in. You know, like they were just marching. They pick people up and they'd be like, hey, what's up, man? How? <laughs> where are you from? How'd you, where'd you, you know, what tribe are you from? What's your set, son? Like that type of shit. So these people came from, a lot of them anyway, from what is somewhat uncouthly called uh, the five civilized tribes. These five tribes in general consisted of the people that went with the, um, that were sufferers of this incident. And these people were, con they consisted of the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Muscogee, and the Seminole peoples. And why were they also called the five civilized tribes? Because these were the first tribes considered by the European colonizers to be deemed civilized, quote unquote. They were considered civilized because these tribes had adopted Anglo-European attributes. They became Christians. They had centralized governments based on European views. They became literate. They participated in the market. They had written constitutions. They intermarried with whites and they even owned slaves. So basically they were civilized because they did everything that colonists imprinted imprinted onto their psyche with years of terrorism, violence, and psychological manipulation. And they still got the Trail of Tears treatment. Cold shit. So after relocating from the south, the Lakapoka and the Muscogee settled down um, in the town of Tulsa between 1828 and 1836, and they called it Tulasi, meaning old town. Not coincidentally, the same word had origins in the naming of Tallahassee, Florida. Fun fact, the Lakapoka and the Muscogee came from pre-Civil War Alabama, so they brought their slaves with them as, you know, as well. So fast forward to 1906, the Civil War is over, and all these black people now are fleeing from the South to this new place called Oklahoma because they want freedom and they're trying to escape Jim Crow. And many of these people, you know, are moving to Oklahoma and they're seeing some of their relatives that they, you know, lost connections with years ago that were now in some part integrated with Native American tribes because these people had been slaves and they were slaves for the Lakapoka and the Muscogee who went to Oklahoma. And, you know, now these people are like, kind of integrated, right? And this union was only able to take place because of the Trail of Tears in most part. So now there's tons of black people in Northern Tulsa cohabitating with Native Americans. The nearby white residents called this area Little Africa or the less refined Nigger Town. What? Oh, come on guys, you're too clever. Uh, but this part of Tulsa was actually the town of Greenwood. Today. Well, it's called Greenwood today, I think. Uh, in the beginning of the 1900s, this big oil boom happened. And in the 1920s, all these free black people realized that they're sitting on tons of money. They had literally been given land by the government because it was believed to be worthless. And suddenly they profited immensely and used this money to build what was later called Black Wall Street. This place was the richest black community in the country. It had tons of prominent businessmen. It was a hotbed of jazz at the time. Lawyers, doctors, realtors, barbers, artists, and they were mostly black. This was in part created because black people, even when they had the money from this oil boom, they couldn't just go spend it at any store that they wanted to and purchase shit. Segregation made simple things like shopping super difficult for black people. So they just built their own shit. 
This was a bustling community. It had about 10,000 black people living there, and the wealth distribution supposedly was not that bad. Segregation allegedly caused every dollar to circulate within the community several times, actually, before it had to be spent anywhere else. That's really powerful. And possibly one of the reasons that incited the atrocities that would happen there a little bit later. Atrocities black people still haven't entire psychologically recovered from or economically, and we're going to talk about that a little later. So imagine this. It's the early 1920s. You're a black man or just a black person. You wake up, you go downtown, you get yourself some breakfast. Nobody tells you, you know, where you're allowed to sit, where you're not allowed to sit. Probably for the first time in your life. You have excellent barbers to get a fresh haircut. Maybe you're off work, you go get your lady, go see a movie. Afterwards, you wanna hear some music. So you head over to the jazz club. Your kids, you don't gotta worry about them. They're being educated at Greenwood High School, baby. They got a curriculum that taught Latin, chemistry, physics. Nobody had to escort them to school with a rifle to get there either. And the school's not full of a bunch of pissed off, baloney sandwich, extra mayonnaise eating white kids who probably spit on you and call you a nigger. There are 23 churches, two newspaper companies, a few fire departments. Everywhere around you, there's intelligent, hardworking, happy, goal-oriented, black model citizens. Coupled with access to just about anything you needed, and with relative ease, I might add. For a little while, this place was paradise. This is where the story should have had its happily ever after. But the American dream soon became a nightmare, like it often does. Nearby white residents became resentful of the new wealth and confidence of these black people. It was rumored so-called quote-unquote nigger town was living better than many of the white residents, many of the surrounding whites who hadn't benefited from the oil boom. Had they not excluded these people from purchasing from their stores in the first place, which I'm kind of glad that they didn't because that's not how economic growth happens in, you know, communities that aren't white. But assuming that they were cool in the first place, perhaps they would have had received residuals from this oil boom themselves in the first place. But their racism quite literally kept them living in fucking shanty towns. Some of them hadn't even been benefiting from like indoor plumbing like the citizens of so-called nigger town, but I digress. Can you imagine being a white dude near Greenwood in the early 1900s? You're riding your high horse, standing firm that you're part of the most elite race of humans on the planet. You look out the window of your trash heap of a house and you see a few black people stunting hard as fuck. They started as slaves in this country and still somehow surpassed you. Throw some more wood on the fire, Jimmy Bob. It's cold as the dickens in here. That's got to be a massive blow to your ego as a racist. Seriously. who? Someone who believes black people are subhuman and doesn't even theoretically possess the ability to participate in something so complex as American civilization or Western capitalism. The black teenagers at Greenwood High School are speaking Latin and doing quantum physics. Meanwhile, white dudes are shooting squirrels with BB guns so they can hopefully eat squirrel stew one more night. Irony. This growing resentment exploded in what's called the Red Summer in 1919. At least 25 race riots popped off across the country. Chicago, DC, and Arkansas were among the places that were, uh, where unrest had occurred. 
The ending of World War I was a huge part of this. John W. Franklin, a senior manager at the National Museum of African American History and Culture said, they came home to parades on Fifth Avenue, but they were lynched in their uniforms across the country in the summer of 1919. Support the troops. Yep. Uh, so this is where things really start going bad in Greenwood. And I can't make this up. This is really what happened as far as I can tell. You can look it all up for yourself. So there's this kid. He's a 19-year-old. He's a shoe shiner. His name's Dick Rowland. He's black. He walks into an elevator at a downtown office building, and the elevator is being operated by a white girl his age named Sarah Page. The two teens touched, uh, you know, by accident, and Sarah says that she was assaulted by Dick after this, and he said that he had, you know, only touched her arm, and when the elevator doors opened, Page ran out screaming, and Dick ran for his life. And I'm not saying downplay rape accusations, but in this particular instance, fuck that bitch, okay? Only deny rape accusers if it's a white girl accusing a black male of anything, and it's any time before the year 1962, all right? Sorry. This poor kid, he immediately starts running because he knows his life is in jeopardy. It's her word against his, and he isn't even considered an entire human being by most of the white people around him. Probably by, you know, most of the town and local governments, most likely. The Tulsa Tribune definitely didn't think it was human because they reported this incident that was harmless as a rape. They claimed Dick tried to tear off her clothes, and tactics like this were used relentlessly at this time for the sole purpose of threatening the lives of young black men. So it isn't hard to believe that Dick was arrested and held at the courthouse. Black people feared he was gonna be killed, so a group of black men, some of them armed, drove downtown on the evening of May 31st. And this shit is still kinda happening in the form of people calling the cops on black people for no reason, and then pretending to cry, like put on for show. And it's like a passive aggressive way to create a situation and then play victim to it and then sick the police like it's fucking gross. So the cops arrive or the black people arrive to the station where Dick's being held. And when they get there, there's already hundreds of white men there and many of them are also armed. So these tensions are starting to rise and black World War One veterans and white men are getting into scuffles and um, over the veterans' right to wield a weapon. So basically, these white dudes are like, you shouldn't have a gun. I guess it's taboo for black people to be armed at this time. And I, I guess from a white guy's perspective, I get it because, you know, <laughs> come on. Suddenly, out of nowhere, gunshots ring out. And within minutes, 20 men from both sides are wounded or dead. So escalation is happening real quick. Tulsa's a war zone all of a sudden. About 5,000 armed white men descended onto Greenwood, and many of them were even deputized by police. They immediately rushed the grocery stores and seized all the food that wasn't squirrel stew. We're in good off these niggers tonight, Jimmy Bob. Tell your mama's sister to get the stove hot. Uh, but anyway, I'm kidding about the squirrel stew uh, shit, but not about the like the looting and all that. They were there to kind of reassert themselves to the top of social hierarchy and kind of take some valuable shit. I mean, they're not living too well, you know, and maybe I don't know if they're doing this consciously or subconsciously to like reassert themselves, but they're definitely coming up. Houses were looted, valuables were taken, jewelry, family keepsakes, and then blacks were led to detention centers and flat out. Well, they are led to detention centers or flat out murdered, not detention centers, then murdered. That'd be fucking... 
Probably hard to write that out of a history book. But anyway, A.C. Jackson, a prominent surgeon at Greenwood at the time, was shot by two white men with his hands while his hands were in the air. So, so that sounds familiar. Buildings were systematically caught on fire. Teams of terrorists gathered flammable liquids and flammable materials to the centers of homes and doused them in kerosene and set them ablaze. Planes circled overhead. According to police, they were for reconnaissance, but survivors said they dropped bombs filled with turpentine and coal. Uh, white rioters even mounted a roving machine gun to a truck. Some of the black people stayed in an attempt to protect the borders. Others fled north to, na north to neighboring communities and they didn't come back. Most were hauled to internment camps at gunpoint, and they stayed at these camps for up to three weeks or until a white person, often an employer, would come and vouch for them. And after their release, they had to carry around a green ID that was signed by whites to prove that they were okay. This is less than a hundred years ago. The attack devastated Greenwood, 215 houses were looted, a whopping 1,256 homes were destroyed, 9,000 black Tolsons were left homeless, and according to the Red, well that's according to the Red Cross, all the Greenwood businesses were gone. Eyewitnesses said that they uh, saw unidentified black bodies being stacked onto trucks and dumped into mass graves. 39 deaths were reported by the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in 01, that's 2001, 26 black and 13 white, but they acknowledged that previous fatality estimates ranging from 100 to 300 people were now more likely incredible. <sighs> Residents of Greenwood attempted to make insurance claims over the $1.8 billion or million dollars in damages. That's roughly $25 million today, but they were denied. The city of Tulsa didn't accept responsibility for any of these claims, citing that it was because it was a riot. No, you know, I, I, I guess I thought insurance would cover that, but whatever. So the men who originally went to the courthouse to defend Dick Rowland were being held responsible for the attack. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, like, hey, we just want to make sure this this black boy don't get killed, man, because you know this shit happens a lot. Hey, these niggas are responsible for this. I'm do, I we're doing this because of you. So anyone except for Sarah, of course, who later actually admitted that she made the whole thing up. Oops. Seriously, like, piece of shit. So uh, Dick's charges were dropped after she recanted the story hours before the shooting even started but they still let the shit pop off and it seemed like she wanted to do the right thing kind of but it was too late white people even went back home or white people went back home after the riots and whatever and uh black tolsons lived in tents on barren plots of land where their houses used to be but check this out uh, it's said that after the destruction, they started rebuilding immediately, and by 1922, virtually all the structures had been rebuilt. And by 1925, the National Negro Business League had its annual conference there. So I guess they started kind of getting shit together. But check this. This is fucking funny. Years after the attack, it was said that black women would be walking around Tulsa, and out of nowhere, they would see these white women wearing jewelry that they that had been looted from their home or their friends. And it was said that many of them snatched that shit right off their fucking necks. 
And before I end this story, here's some additional eyewitness accounts of the attack on Tulsa. I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted, and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top, and then another, and another, and another building began to burn from their top," wrote Buck Colbert Franklin, 1879 to 1960. Historian John Hope Franklin writes, there's a lot of Frank, this is the third nigga with the name Franklin that I've mentioned so far. Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended the sky in thick black volumes and emitted all the planes, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted here and there with agility of natural birds of the air. This nigga, I know he's a lawyer, but he should have been a poet. Like this is, he, he writes really well. So anyway, the sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew it all too well where they had come from. I knew all too well why they, why they were burning all the buildings in the first, oh fuck. I'm messing this up. I knew all too well why every building first caught from the top. He continues. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where, oh where, is our splendid fire department with its half a dozen stations? I asked myself, is the city in conspiracy with the mob? When looking through the comments from videos about this incident on YouTube, I would see lots of the same shit. One of them was, why don't we just leave the past in the past? Or how can black people keep blaming things that happened so long ago on their failures today? This, this story, this is how. At a time when slavery wasn't even a thing, people still couldn't even pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they wanted to. Even when we lived, uh, even if we lived today in a time that we could build a place like Greenwood or better, and it, and, it wouldn't, and it wouldn't be burned to the ground, the psychological damage that's led up to this point is very difficult to erase. At some point, it becomes very difficult to engage, to, want, to even want to do shit. There's a simple anecdote that always stuck in my brain that helps illustrate this situation. Elephants, baby elephants. Like when they're captured as babies and, you know, probably for like a circus or something, right? For example, they're chained at the ankle during their captivity with metal chains and metal shackles. They struggle furiously to get free at first, but eventually they realize they cannot break the metal shackle and chain. They're not strong enough. Fast forward to when those same elephants are adults. Now their legs are tied with shackles made out of rope and that rope is pounded on into the ground with a wooden stake. And of course, we can see it and know that the giant elephant could very easily rip this stake from the ground if they wanted to. They could probably even break a metal chain, but now their minds, it's their minds that have been shackled and it's harder to remove than a physical thing. They no longer possess the hope or belief that they can overcome in many situations. They're prisoners in their minds to the point where it hides their massive size and strength even from their own eyes. 
If this episode made you think, please like and subscribe. If you'd like to comment on the episode, I'll probably put some sort of poll or question or something in the episode if you're listening to this on Spotify. That way you can directly interact with me and I promise I'm not going to bite. I'm kind of nice actually. Most of the time. You can also email me directly dean at deanxmartian.com. That's my email address. If you want to put your two cents in here somewhere, go ahead. I dare you. Next episode, we got another two-parter coming, and I don't even really want to say what it's about because I want it to be a surprise, but I'll give you another hint. More stuff about colonizers. Tune in next week. Peace, bitches. <laughs>